Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling. They make it easier than ever to discover the right content to enrich your life. As a leading destination for audio storytelling, Audible has thousands of titles, including audiobooks, groundbreaking originals, podcasts, and so much more. I love listening to audiobooks on long car trips, which of course I'm constantly on because I live in Los Angeles and it takes 30 minutes to go five miles. Recently, I've been listening to Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, and it is perfect for commuting or driving around the city because it's so funny. I love that it's narrated by Tina Fey. It feels like she's telling me a story on my drive. Right now, you can get one month of Audible for free by using offer code UNRULY. That will get you one free audiobook to enjoy on your next long drive. Go to audibletrial.com backslash unruly to get your free audiobook. And let me know what you pick because I want to know what to listen to next. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y to get your free audiobook. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering someone who makes Jay Gatsby look like a pretty tame fellow. Her name is Polly Adler. She was a Russian Jewish immigrant to the US in the years before World War I. She seemed destined for a life of hard work and low wages, but she refused to live a life of poverty just because it was what was expected of her as a quote unquote good Jewish girl. Instead, she became a madam, running the best brothel in all of New York City for over 20 years. Her position as a caterer of delights to America's elite made her incredibly powerful behind the scenes. She was famous around the US, and when she wrote her autobiography in the 1950s, it was a sensation. I am very excited to tell you about her. For a lot of this episode, I will be relying on the biography of Polly Adler by Debbie Applegate, as well as Adler's own memoir, A House Is Not A Home. A few quick notes before we hop in. First, a series of trigger warnings. Polly was Jewish and faced a lot of anti-Semitism, especially early in her life in Russia, so I'm going to touch on that a little. Then later on in her life, Polly and her fellow workers in the sex trade happily used the word whore to describe themselves and their jobs. To use the words of Danton Walker, quote, they were known by the biblical name whores and their establishments were called whorehouses. I probably won't use the word whore that often, but it will come up. If either of those things bother you, this may not be a good episode for you. And then final warning, unfortunately with an unregulated industry like the sex trade and bootlegging alcohol comes unsavory things like murder and sexual violence and just general criminal activity. While I'm going to skip over most of the really gruesome bits, if you are not into that, well, my feelings won't be hurt if you want to skip listening to this. Okay, let's hop back in time. Polly Adler was born Pearl Adler in 1900 in the Jewish Pale of Russia. Her actual birthday is somewhat up for debate, um, any records were lost to fire and war, and her parents weren't quite sure either. Her mother, Jatel, was, quote, sure that her firstborn child was delivered on a Sunday two weeks before the Passover holiday, but the year? That Jatel didn't know. Moshe, her father, was certain that Pearl was a year and a half old when the American President William McKinley was killed by that madman in Buffalo, New York. 
So Moshe settled on the 17th day of the month of Nisan in the year of 5660 by the Jewish calendar or April 16th, 1900. To reduce confusion, I'm going to go ahead and call her Polly for this entire episode, though she wasn't given that new name until she had been living in the U.S. for a few years. Now, in Yana, where Polly was born and the family remained for many years, they were relatively well-off, living in a big house with a yard. Moshe was a tailor and used the front room for client fittings, and his assistant and their maid-of-all work lived in the back room. Polly's mother split her time between helping Moshe with the business and taking care of the family. She gave birth to six boys and one more girl after Polly. Moshe had wanderlust. He took a trip to New York City early in Polly's life, which made him quite cosmopolitan. In Yana, most people had never even left to go to the nearby city of Pinsk, let alone traveled to another country. Moshe would also visit Warsaw and Berlin during her childhood and would realize that there was like a whole world outside of Yana for his family. In her autobiography, Polly wrote, quote, It seems to me that at a quite early age, I began identifying myself with my father, if by identifying is meant preferring a role which would not confine my horizon to the boundaries of Yanau or limit my activities to cooking, sewing, scrubbing, and childbearing. I wanted to get out and see the world and mingle with people and have my say about what went on, End quote. This was easier wished for than done. In a small town like Yano, a local boy might study in the yeshivas or travel for work, but the world was seen as dangerous for good Jewish girls, and it wasn't considered nice for her to want to leave. And even if that hadn't been the case, an aggressively anti-Jewish bureaucracy in Russia made it incredibly difficult for her to do anything. She would have had to obtain an expensive legal permit to change residence and work or study elsewhere. Jews were forbidden to live in most parts of Russia unless they were considered, like, quote-unquote, useful in some capacity. According to Debbie Applegate, who wrote that the biography of Polly Adler, Madam, that I'm relying on, um, according to Applegate, quote, it was whispered that some girls were so desperate to go to school in Moscow or St. Petersburg that they agreed to register as useful prostitutes so they could get a special passport or yellow ticket that allowed them to live in the metropolis. The Russian government very thoroughly regulated every aspect of a Jewish person's life in the empire, and there were nearly 5 million Jews living in Russia. For the most part, they had been forced into specific communities, specific careers, and faced quotas for how many Jews could attend school or enter a profession, legislative pogroms, as one journalist dubbed them. So, life in Yana was not easy. While Yana was was not an exclusively Jewish town, the Adler family lived in the Jewish neighborhood among other Jewish people. The town had its own caste system and accompanying snobbery. Quote, the Hasidic Jews looked down on the merely orthodox, the Zionists railed against the socialists, the progressives scorned the traditionalists, and vice versa. Those who showed too much aspiration for their social, social station were ridiculed for putting on airs. Anyone who showed too much independence from the common wisdom of the community was sure to feel the glass of gossiping tongues. And, of course, quote, once the townsfolk put someone in their place, it was nearly impossible to be free of that identity. Within this society, a woman's worth was measured by her ability to help her husband live according to God's law. Women were not well-educated by today's standards, but they did handle the family business and were usually at least more financially savvy than their husbands. They were discouraged from learning Hebrew and studying the Torah, but they often spoke Russian, Polish, and local dialects to help them in math and negotiation in the marketplace. But Moshe was different. Polly's most cherished ambition was to get an education, and he really supported her in this. 
According to Applegate, quote, he and Polly enjoyed a not uncommon emotional dynamic, one that shaped the lives of many of history's most accomplished women. A father who was unconventional but self-certain, frustrated in his own ambitions, and eager to channel them into his oldest child, even if she had the misfortune of being a girl. In turn, Polly had all the attributes of an eldest daughter who was treated like a son, confident, quick-witted, competitive, and determined to prove she was just as capable as any boy." End quote. Meanwhile, between 1907 and 1910, local governments in Russia began expelling thousands of Jews from their home, driving the dispossessed into small numbers of villages like Yanau. The overcrowding led to ruinous competition, lowering everyone's standard of living. Remember, Jews were restricted to work only in certain industries, and so there quickly became like too many shoemakers, tailors, blacksmiths, and shopkeepers for any given village. As more arrived, they found themselves becoming beggars, living in extreme poverty. Increasingly, Jewish parents became nervous. It wasn't hard to see that their kids wouldn't have a good future in Russia. And with increasing anti-Semitic policies coming down, they began sending their children out of Russia to continue their education elsewhere. Polly was determined to be one of the ones that got out. Quote, by the time I was 12, all my hopes and plans for the future hinged on my winning a scholarship to the gymnasia at Pinsk, she wrote. She began studying with the local rabbi with Moshe's blessing and money, while others' fathers scoffed at a daughter receiving such a dedicated and intense education. Moshe paid the rabbi to prepare her for the entrance exam, which included studying the Russian language, Hebrew history, and math. While we know that this education paid off in uncounted ways, we don't know if Polly would have received the scholarship she desperately craved, because by the time it was awarded, she was well on her way to America. The latest round of anti-Semitic decrees had made it clear that remaining in Russia was out of the question, so Moshe began planning for their escape. When he heard that one of their cousins was sailing to the U.S., he decided Polly would accompany her. If you're surprised he didn't try to move the family as a whole, consider the cost. A single ticket cost about 40 US dollars, and most Jewish emigres had to pay a quote-unquote travel broker, what we'd call now a human smuggler, an extra fee to shepherd them safely to the seaport because they legally couldn't travel. In addition to whatever the smuggler pocketed, each traveler had to give him enough to cover all the necessary bribes and accommodations along the way. Finally, each emigrant was required by U.S. law to have 20 U.S. dollars in hand when they arrived to ensure that they would not become beggars or thieves. I'm guessing a little here, but the total cost to leave might have been, what, 100 U.S. dollars at minimum? In 1913, when Polly traveled, 100 U.S. dollars was equivalent to about $2,800 now. Multiply that by two parents and eight total children, and we're talking about $28,000 today. That wasn't something the family could save up on short notice. So yeah, they sent Polly alone to establish a foothold, and then she would send for them when she was able. That said, the U.S. government didn't, like, love this habit of sending young teenage girls alone to America. In 1913, the same year that Polly immigrated, they mandated that no unaccompanied girls under the age of 16 could be legally admitted into the U.S. Of course, according to Applegate, this rule was routinely broken. When we talk about most immigrants moving to the U.S., it was traditional for a husband or older son. But for Jewish people in this period, it was expected that women would shoulder worldly responsibility at a young age. You know, we did just talk about how wives would handle family business while husbands focus on faith. So sending a teenage girl for a Jewish family was perfectly reasonable. Teenage girls were, quote, commonly the first in their families to travel to America, where they would live with friends or relatives while they saved enough money to pay for their family's steamship tickets. So when Polly arrived, she was just one of a huge number. 
quote, 13,588 unaccompanied Jewish girls who came through Ellis Island in 1913. In her autobiography, Polly told the story of the first adult decision that she ever made on the way to the U.S. After passing through the treacherous tunnels and the bureaucratic hoops to board their ship in Germany, her cousin got scared and backed out. She was too afraid to move to a strange country and begged Polly for, to ask for permission to go back. As an adult, she recounted, quote, When I saw it was useless to argue with her, I made my first adult decision. Let my cousin go back. I'd go on. I went over to the immigration officer, turned on the tears, and talked him into giving me a re-entry permit, one only. Then I marched back to my cousin, thrust it into her hand, and told her of my determination to go on to America. Though she put up a token resistance, the one thing on her mind was getting the hell out of there and back to Russia, so it wasn't long before she kissed me goodbye. When Polly landed, she was bundled onto a train to Springfield, Massachusetts, where her father had some friends from the village. It was a weird choice. They had family in New York and Chicago, and both cities had large Jewish communities, which Springfield did not. But that's where he chose. When she arrived at the station, there was no one there to greet her. A station master assured her someone would be there soon and gave her a piece of candy, but she remained understandably scared. When it got dark and big electric signs turned on, Polly was petrified because she'd never seen anything like it before. The Resnicks, who eventually, I guess, picked her up, shared an odd relationship with Polly after she came to live with them. They fed and clothed her, but were largely uninterested in her otherwise. They sent her to school as soon as she arrived in an evening program for, quote, illiterate adults. However, once she met the basic educational requirements for immigrants, which at that time was a fourth grade mastery of the English language, Mr. Resnick told her she had to get a job. It took some finagling, including a signed affidavit from her father, Iniano, which lied that Polly was 16 years old. She quickly found work in a paper factory, but it was repetitive and boring with no chance to move up the ladder. It was a five and a half day work week, working from 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m., and she only earned $3 a week, which was a low wage even then. $3 a week in 1914 would be $83 a week now, or about $4,300 a year. Most of her money went to the Resnicks for room and board, leaving her only pennies to spend and no room to save. Polly was, of course, crushed. She had left her family and risked everything, only to be a second-class citizen, quote, doomed to spend her days in a backbreaking struggle for food and shelter. While it probably wasn't her father's intention, Springfield was a great place to become Americanized. The city had one of the best education systems in the country, and girls were allowed to join clubs, play sports, act in plays, and attend concerts, dances, and movies. The city was also a melting pot of several immigrant groups. Polly's earliest friends were two Irish-American girls who lived next door. Now, family lore has it that sometime after she, like, graduated from fourth grade for illiterate adults, um, after she graduated in March 1915, Polly was caught walking hand-in-hand hand with a Christian boy. This was unacceptable. The Resnicks had not assimilated so much that a girl living under their roof could mix with non-Jewish people romantically. Shocked by this behavior, they declared her dead to them and even sat Shiva, the ritual period of mourning, as if she had literally gone to the grave. They didn't kick her out, but she might as well have been a ghost walking about in their midst. So she left and moved to Brooklyn, where she hoped there was more than like stony silence and a terrible job waiting for her. She moved in with a cousin, Brina Friedman, who welcomed her warmly. Brina would go on to provide a home for many of their shared family members when they first landed in the U.S. They lived in a neighborhood called Brownsville, which had a reputation as, quote, New York's rawest, remotest, cheapest ghetto. 
Almost 100,000 Jews lived in a space of only two square miles. It was the largest concentration of Jews in America and referred to as the Jerusalem of America. Large families often lived in one or two bedroom apartments without bathrooms. Baths had to be taken in tubs that were also used for laundry and like public restrooms. Apartments were so cramped and badly ventilated that they were freezing in the winter and sweltering in the summer. It wasn't uncommon to see people sleeping on roofs and fire escapes just to like get some space. By the time Polly arrived, Brownsville rivaled the worst cities in America for crime. Boxer Sammy Aronson, who was also from Brownsville, later said, quote, Everyone in Brownsville who grew up honest did it by mistake. Even when crime wasn't the issue, immigrants watched their kids like kind of abandon Jewish traditions and become obsessed with the pursuit of money. They saw it as, quote, a particularly powerful tool that helped them to transcend, at least compensate for, the barriers imposed by bigotry and anti-Semitism. Your money is as good as anybody else's money, and it doesn't come fairer than that or more democratic, once said reporter Michael Hare. Polly quickly found a job at a corset factory, which paid $5 a week. That's about $100 a week today. It's low pay like this that made minimum wage laws necessary starting in the 1920s. Uh, Though the pay was low, the work was steady and workshops were clean and safe thanks to a strong union representing the seamstresses. But her expenses were high compared to her pay. She paid $3 per week for room and board, plus $1.20 per week on transportation and food expenses. That left her less than a dollar per week for all of her clothes, toiletries, other necessities, and like to send money home, which was the whole point of her being there. Plus, the work was backbreaking. She would be bent over a needle six days a week for nine to ten hours a day, surrounded by the constant, deafening racket of the sewing machines echoing in the factory. But there, Polly made friends with a girl named Eva, who introduced her to American teen culture. The other girls at the factory, quote, provided a thorough education in American ways, practicing English by singing ragtime song lyrics, gabbing about clothes and the stories they saw at the Nickelodeons, sympathizing over old-fashioned parents and newfangled men. End quote. Eva got Polly to go out dancing with them, though Polly had been warned several times not to go to clubs in New York because of the risk of being kidnapped and trafficked by, quote, white slavers, as human traffickers were sometimes called then. Though hesitant at first, Polly loved the world Eva introduced her to. Women didn't need to be chaperoned at the halls, and so it was a heady taste of freedom. Bronzeville was known as the place to go for both ragtime music and cocaine, so the dance halls were always wild and attracted people from all over the city. Quote, it was also my debut on the dance floor, and after five minutes, I was convinced that was where I wanted to spend the rest of my life, she wrote in her memoir. Polly practiced dancing as often as she could and began enter- entering dance contests around Brooklyn. She won prizes of candy, dolls, and even cash. Soon after discovering the world of dance halls, she started going to Coney Island, known as, quote, Sodom by the Sea. <laughs> Basically just a spit of land at the far end of Brooklyn, Coney Island was a place someone could, could go to, quote, drink, gamble, have their palm read, watch a prize fight or a burlesque show, as well as have their pockets picked, nose punched, and clothes stolen. Waiters often doubled as pimps, and entertainers were openly gay and often worked in drag, which was riskier to do closer to Manhattan. Polly adored Coney Island, and her photo album is filled with snapshots of her and her friends out there. Even though Coney Island activities were cheap, like five cents here, ten cents there, it still added up. 
Since men earned twice as much or even more than women at the time, women really relied on men to pay their way for these amusements. Polly and her friends called it treating, but it could kind of cynically be thought of as dating. It was, quote, sexual barter, pleasures explained for pleasures, the treat of a day at Coney Island, a little present, an ice cream soda, exchange for the charm of feminine company and the potential prospect of some kind of sexual intimacy. I said cynically because it became something of a competition between the women. A reporter recorded two girls reflecting on their day in terms of how much money men spent on them. One said her day was great because, quote, he blew $5 on her, whereas the other man was a, quote, chump who only spent $2.55. For some, it became a game to see, quote, how much they could get in exchange for how little they had to give. Premarital sex was often too big a risk, as an out-of-wedlock pregnancy was still disastrous for a woman's reputation, and women didn't want to be known for, like, openly trading sex for money, but everything else was more or less on the table. And, of course, the U.S. entry into World War I only encouraged, like, a loosening of morality, especially in Brooklyn, where a lot of soldiers and sailors were, like, deposited while waiting to be shipped to the war front. Rates of premarital sex jumped drastically, in part because young women felt patriotic sleeping with soldiers before they went to war. Dubbed victory girls, they saw themselves as providing aid to men facing death, and of course these hormonal 17-year-old boys who'd been drafted encouraged this belief by saying things like, we are fighting for you girls and you ought to do something for us. (laughs) Rates of STIs, illegitimate births, and elopements all rose, quote, precipitously in 1917. But... And this is kind of dark, and if this bothers you, you might want to skip ahead like a minute. Coney Island would end up being a site of serious danger for Polly. As we'll talk about more in a few minutes, she had begun working at a factory making army uniforms, and she developed a little crush on the foreman there. On a weekday afternoon during the winter, he invited her out to Coney Island. Unbeknownst to her, the place was basically abandoned at this time. He locked her in a rickety house, beat her, and raped her. When she realized she was pregnant a few weeks later, he laughed in her face and refused to help pay for an abortion. She scraped together $35 for a clinic in Brownsville. Abortions were illegal at the time, but so were condoms and birth control hadn't been invented yet. So there were a lot of doctors willing to perform the procedure. And the like $35 sounds cheap, so I want to point out that that's the equivalent of $829 today. When she told the doctor what happened, he kindly charged her only $25 and told her to use her last 10 to buy some warmer shoes. By this point, Polly was 17, and her family was encouraging her to start thinking seriously about marriage, especially because the, quote, time-honored way to calm a wild-haired girl was to find her a husband. They didn't know about the attack by the foreman, but Polly was running with what they considered a wild crowd, while girls of her generation saw wedding or saw a wedding as like the goal, capital T, capital G. It was often a little fraught. Respectable wives didn't work outside the home, but families in Brownsville could not make ends meet on one salary. And even if they found husbands with good jobs, marriage wasn't like a luxurious experience. For most women, it was an endless cycle of like pregnancy and childbirth and housekeeping. It's hardly any surprise that many girls of the generation started postponing marriage as like as long as they could. So instead of thinking about marriage, Polly began pursuing money for herself. She developed a love of finery, or as much finery as she could afford on less than a dollar a week. She and her friends were, quote, 
paragons of working girl fashion, sporting impractically high French heels, daring skirts that showed off the ankles, and girlish empire waistlines that dispensed with the hourglass corsets that made it impossible to dance. In fact, Polly remembers curvy figures as being, quote, out of style and the boyish figure all the rage. She, however, was naturally curvy, so she bound her chest with strips of white cloth to make herself, quote, as flat in the front as possible. She sometimes bound these so tight that she nearly passed out at her machine at the factory and didn't stop until her co-workers began relentlessly calling these bindings her, quote, mummy wrappings. Of course, all of those clothes that she wanted were expensive. Even a really cheap store-bought dress at the time would cost more than $5. So Polly used her sewing skills to make her own clothes. She modeled her look on Theta Bara, the star of the 1950 blockbuster A Fool There Was. Bara popularized the vamp look, though its origins are like in an 1897 painting called The Vampire. The vamp was a new archetype of femininity. It's, orig it's the origin of the femme fatale, women who were unashamed of sex and used it as a tool as much as men did. Polly, ambitious and ready to throw off the rules that had already shamed her so much in her short life, embraced this wholeheartedly, calling herself a baby vamp. During the war, Polly's job at the corset factory ended because the metal needed for women's corsets got diverted into the war machine. She found another job making men's army uniforms, this one making like $10 a week, which is about $200 in today's money. Nevertheless, she found herself, quote, restless and discontented, thinking that surely life must offer me other alternatives than a factory job. She also began to crave moving out of her cousin's home, where she was still sleeping on a couch. When the armistice came, Polly's job ended once again, and she knew it was her chance. She went to the Tenderloin with her friend Eva to begin looking for a new job and cheap apartments when they coincidentally met a young musician named Harry Richman, who was on the up and up. Eva ditched them, so Polly and Harry passed the evening in Ball Tabarin, a new supper club and cabaret inside the Winter Garden Theater, named for the, fame bar, the famous bar in Paris. They stayed out all night, and though Polly claimed in her memoirs that the evening was innocent, when she got home the next morning, her cheap clothes that she had made herself were like in tatters and she was clearly hungover. Her cousin kicked her out immediately. Standing on the subway platform with her meager possessions wrapped in a bundle of newspaper, Polly burst into laughter. In her memoir, she said, quote, So far, I had certainly racked up a row of goose eggs in the Golden Land. I had failed in my quest for the education I might have gotten in Pinsk. I had lost my virginity, my reputation, and my job. All I had gotten was older. She set her sights on Manhattan, where everybody came lured by dreams. Rent had skyrocketed due to wartime inflation, and there was a housing shortage besides because demobilized soldiers and sailors were arriving back on U.S. shores. She eventually found something in the gas house district near Union Square, named for the towering gas tanks that lined that stretch of the East River. The stench of the gas often blew through the streets, which must have been vile. The neighborhood's main claim to fame was its particularly violent street gangs. But she still hadn't found a job. She searched for weeks, she spent all her savings on the apartment's first month rent, and was starting to worry she'd never find anything. That's when she met Abe Shornik, another Russian Jew who had immigrated to the city. They met at one of the many cafes around the neighborhood that served, quote, respectable patrons during the day, but became the hangouts of the city's underbelly when decent people were in bed. Polly eventually landed a job at the Trio Corset Company in January 1919. She started just days before 20,000 seamstresses turned off their machines and walked out of work to begin the International Ladies Garment Workers Union strike. It would end up lasting three months. 
For Polly, the strike was a disaster because she had no family and no savings to fall back on. It's unclear how she made money or paid rent during it. And even when it ended, things didn't really get easier. Just the next month, the May Day Massacre set off a summer of strikes around the city, including the scrub women at the Mutual Life Insurance Building and the Actors Union on Broadway. The result was less demand for corsets and women's clothing from employers and theaters, meaning Polly and her co-workers still struggled, even though they had gotten kind of better rights and pay through the uh, union strike earlier that year. Again, how she managed to keep paying rent during 1919 is unclear, though it's probable that this is when she turned to prostitution herself. Though she would later be very forthcoming about any number of subjects, the year 1919 is one she was always cagey about. Quote, I had to be a madam, I was never pretty enough to be a hustler, she would say. Hustler was a common euphemism for a prostitute then. She was quick to point out, quote, it was a hell of a life, but as I hasten to point out before everybody else does, no tougher for me than for plenty of other poor working girls who didn't become madams. But she didn't become a madam in 1919. So again, we really don't know how she made money, but it's, uh, yeah, the, the guess is this is the year she turned to prostitution and just preferred not to talk about it. By the end of the year, she went to Abe Shorting for help. He took her uptown to the wealthier west side, where she met an aspiring singer named Joan who needed a roommate in this enormous apartment while her parents were out of town. Briefly, Polly reveled in this like golden world she'd never had a glimpse of, but she began to see like the reality of it really soon. Joan had an opium addiction that she barely hid, and when her parents returned, it turned out that her father, quote-unquote, was actually a pimp about their own age. Though the neighborhood had a veneer of respectability, the brownstones were, quote, hived with hustlers and gimme girls of every variety, from freelancing roommates who picked up sailors on leave to elaborate harems that catered to the carriage trade. Almost certainly, Abe Shornick brought her to some kind of discreet brothel. End quote. For those in the know, the Upper West Side was the, quote, district of loose women, some 5,000 of them, according to the to notorious morality police, the Committee of 14. While some quote-unquote good girls might have balked, Polly was not put off by this. She was ambitious enough to see that the money was easier than backbreaking work in a factory, and the money brought like a level of glitz and glamour to life that she had been missing in Brownsville in the Gashouse District. The parties were raucous, filled with jazz, drugs, and sex. And she enjoyed being there and witnessing them, even though she rarely, she never took part in um, actual the drug use. Through Joan, she became friends with several Broadway dancers and singers, many whom she'd keep in touch with throughout the, her career. For girls like Polly, Broadway was a dream because it was one of the few places that was equally welcoming to women and Jews as it was to Christian men. And not just in the theaters, Broadway was known for having a seedy underbelly of gambling, fencing steal stolen goods, drug dealing, and prostitution. A lot of these girls supplemented their earnings by being mistresses to wealthy men. From them, Polly learned that the key to an amicable ending to these relationships, because they always ended, was to persuade the man to, quote, skip the flowers and chocolates and trinkets and to give gifts of hard assets. Real estate or stocks and bonds were best, but furs and jewelry were welcome too. Basically, anything that could be liquidated for cash when the relationship ended. Women who spent their youth as mistresses that didn't do this found themselves poor in their older years, eventually turning to prostitution when they weren't young and attractive enough to play the mistress role anymore. These, quote, gold diggers of the 1920s particularly favored gold art deco bracelets studded with gems. They called them their service stripes. Now, in the midst of this kind of like new partying lifestyle that Polly found herself a part of, 
uh, came prohibition. The 18th Amendment passed on January 16, 1919, prohibiting the production, transport, and sale of liquor, and was poised to go into effect a year later in 1920. As that date approached, the mood on Broadway turned gloomy. Many places stocked up on liquor to try to carry them into the ban, but it would only last so long. Most restaurants and theaters were terrified that this would impact business, sure that they would go under. Of course, we know what happened when the ban went into effect. No one stopped drinking. They just changed how. In New York City, the 10,343 licensed bar of 1919 were replaced by more than 15,000 speakeasies by February 1920, which really should come as no surprise. All the vice trades, alcohol, prostitution, drugs, have survived countless moral crusades and they will continue it too. Banning it always, always is a financial boon for criminal classes and a financial stressor for governments. And Polly was perfectly poised to take advantage of this. Also through Jones, she had befriended someone named Tony, a bootlegger who would grow up to be a well-known gangster. At the time, he was having an affair with a married woman, so he told Polly that if she would keep an apartment where he could meet his lady friend whenever he wanted, he would pay the rent. In her memoir, Polly wrote, quote, It never even occurred to me to think of Tony's plan and my part in it as being moral or immoral. It did not touch me personally. It simply paid my rent. I didn't think, now I'll be a madam and run a house of assignation. I'm not apologizing for my decision, nor do I think, even if I had been aware of the moral issues involved, I would have made a different one. My feeling is that by the time there are such choices to be made, your life has already made the decision for you, end quote. With Tony's money, she moved into an apartment on West 115th Street in a neighborhood called Morningside Heights, feeling a bit like she had finally made it. When Tony's romance fell apart, he asked Polly to find a new girl for him, so she called up a girl she knew who, quote, made no bones about being available for a fee. Tony gave her 50 and the girl 100, and Polly was officially a madam, though I don't think there was any real paperwork involved. <laughs> she began making $100 a week just from Tony, which today is over $1,500. At that rate, she was making four times the average white male worker's salary at the time. All along, Polly had been sending whatever money she could spare back home to Yano, and now she began to send more. To explain the change, she told her parents that she was managing a corset factory. Once she had the extra money, Polly spent it glamming up her wardrobe and going out around Broadway. She met more men looking to meet girls, and she also met more girls willing to go on a date, maybe more, for a decent fee. Moreover, the apartment was directly across from Columbia University, my alma mater, but back then it was an all-men's university, which both lent an air of like legitimacy and scholarship to the area, but also made sure that there was a constant supply of new clients with money. Barnard College was also right around the corner, and to most people, the 22-year-old Polly passed for a Barnard student. Her neighbors suspected nothing, they just thought she was like a well-to-do girl studying at school and partying most nights. Her, jo her new job didn't trouble her, as she later reflected, quote, I didn't invent sex. Nobody had to come to my apartment who didn't want to. She never forced the women to be there. They were paid well, and they went home at the end of the night, unless they didn't have anywhere else to go. Actually, it's worth noting that Polly was careful to treat these people as employees and investments, not as a commodity that could be beaten and stolen from, which was how male pimps t tended to treat prostitutes. Smithsonian Magazine noted that Polly had a habit of, quote, teaching the coarser ones table manners and encouraging them to read, reminding them that they couldn't stay in the life forever. She never had to advertise or lure potential gals, but instead turned away 30 or 40 for every one that she hired, end quote. 
The first time Polly was arrested came just a few months later. Though the case was dismissed, she felt that she was at a crossroads. She could accept this was her life and embrace being a madam by doing it in a business-like way, or she could give up the life and go back to factory work for $10 a week. Obviously, she decided to pursue it like a business or we wouldn't be here today, but she still viewed it as, quote, a temporary expedient. I'd quit when I had enough capital to finance a legitimate enterprise. She found that managing a brothel was very busy work. Not just drumming up customers and workers, but she also was keeping the place clean, bringing in food and illegal alcohol, bringing in musicians for entertainment. Polly had decided that if she was going to do it, she was going to be the best at it. And her house, as they were called, got a good reputation as a place where people would party and spend an entire night. She was so busy that major changes, like women getting the vote, didn't even like register on her radar. Quote, I was too busy running a house to spare a thought to running the country, she wrote. It became an adage that, quote, Jewish women made the best madams. It was a belief backed by numbers. 20% of New York's population was Jewish at the time, but they owned 50% of the city's brothels. And it was actually thanks to that kind of like vigil village heritage that I talked about earlier. Girls were taught how to run a business from a young age while boys studied the Torah, remember? They learned the two main skills necessary to run a house, good financial skills and how to entertain. Within two years, Polly had saved up $6,000, which is a little over $108,000 today. She and a friend called Nettie decided to pool their resources and open a lingerie shop on Broadway. Polly designed the clothes and Nettie handled the books. But by this time, the cops had Polly's number and they couldn't believe that she'd turned legit. They arrested her and Nettie and dragged them downtown. When they produced evidence that it was a legitimate store, the case was dismissed, but it must have seemed foreboding. Polly's lingerie shop, unfortunately, was not a success. They held on for about a year, just barely breaking even. The timing was good, though, because it was while the shop was open that her father made a trip to New York. Though Polly never felt much shame about being a madam, she'd worried about her parents' reaction if they knew. Having a legitimate business allowed her to face him. Her parents' success heartened him, and he bragged to her cousins, who had, of course, wrote to him when they kicked her out of Brooklyn, that they had been wrong and his daughter was a success. Polly even told him that she was engaged to a rabbi's son, though that part was a complete lie. He went back home to Yano, convinced that he had made the right decision, sending his daughter to the U.S. After about a year, though, the laundry shop had to close, and Polly went right back to being a madam. With only $100 in her pocket, she went to Arnold Rothstein for startup capital. Rothstein was known as A.R. to his colleagues, a nod to the fact that he was the criminal underworld's J.P. Morgan, a short-term banker for criminals. He had legitimate businesses in insurance and real estate, but in Polly's world, he was primarily a fixer, racketeer, and crime boss, accused of fixing the 1919 World Series. He was also partial to women in general, both in terms of like keeping several mistresses as well as a beautiful wife, but he also believed that women made the best jewel thieves and were key to any successful racket. He was known to invest heavily in brothels, and so Polly went to him for a loan to get back on her feet. To make sure she could pay it back, he let it be known that her house existed and was recommended by AR. Very soon, she was running a busy house again, this time with a clientele of primarily gangsters, hoodlums, and bootleggers, some of whom were to become the big shots of the day. In her brief absence, the kind of like iconic flapper girl had been popularized. And while a lot of people denounced flappers as like morally bankrupt generation of women, they also sort of thought that the rise of the flapper would put madams like Polly out of business because, quote, why would a man pay for sex when the city seemed to be teeming with amateurs eager to jump into bed for free? 
But the same people who considered prohibition a bad bet knew that prostitution would survive. Polly called up the people she knew from before, telling them she was back in business, and things continued right along. She built up a network of go-betweens, waiters, bartenders, busboys, elevator operators, and cabbies, anyone who might be in the right place at the right time to point a man in her direction for a small commission. Luxury hotels, by the way, were the best place to do this. Unlike in The White Lotus, where the hotel manager is like annoyed by Lucia and Mia hanging, out, hanging around the lobby, hotel managers turned a blind eye to this at the grand hotels like the Biltmore, the Waldorf Astoria, etc. Quote, as long as they were discreet, well-dressed, and tipped generously, the girls were welcome because it meant the guests kept coming back. In some hotels, the staff handed guests a card to give to the madam, which signaled that the madam would not bill the guests directly, but bill the hotel, and they would charge the guests using a discreet line item on the hotel bill. But while hotels were helpful, the vice squad cops make, made life very hard. Several were as corrupt as the people they arrested. The squad ran a shakedown operation of madams and gangsters that brought in millions of dollars annually. According to Adler's biographer Debbie Applegate, quote, the stream of graft from Vice was so steady and so lucrative that it required excellent political connections and a kickback of several thousand dollars to wrangle a spot on one of the plainclothes squads spread throughout the city, end quote. Professional lawbreakers like Polly had mixed feelings about the system. On the one hand, she began paying hefty bribes to cops to look the other way. On the other hand, without crooked cops, all the black markets in New York would close up. The primes really added up, though. During one of her arrests, a bail bondsman showed up and offered to put up bail to release her. But he said that if she got a lawyer that he recommended, quote, he could guarantee the charges would go out the window. Either the charges would be dismissed for lack of evidence or she'd be acquitted, but the fee was anywhere from $200 to $500. Of that, $25 went to pay the arresting officer to either not show up or to make like a huge mess of his testimony, um, so the charges had to be dropped. Sometimes the judge was also in on it, and so he or she would take a cut. Whatever was left went to the bondsman and the attorney. If Polly refused, she was guaranteed a guilty verdict and time behind bars. Her choices became go to jail or go broke. And of course, once they'd found a mark, the police would target the same people over and over again, let them build up their savings just enough, then make an arrest to drain it. Polly tried to outrun them by changing apartments frequently, but they always caught up. Madams have ways of trying to counter this, and they shared tips and tricks with each other. One, for instance, got photos of plainclothes detectives, quote, at work and at play, which she used to blackmail them right back. She kept the negatives in a safety deposit box. Polly learned to identify the thick-soled black shoes that were too ugly to be stylish. The cops needed them for all the walking they did all day. Soon, though, George McManus, the famous Broadway oddsmaker, found Polly's house and decided he liked it. He was the son of an NYPD officer, tall, good-looking, charming. He was known as Smiling George and beloved by everyone in the service industry because he had a habit of just, like, dropping $20 tips without blinking. He and, quote, and his friend Big Bill Dwyer were running the hottest secret craps game in New York City, with action running as high as $700,000 some nights. I know I keep doing this, but I, I just really need to emphasize, $700,000 in 1923 is $12 million today. When the game was done and everyone had collected their winnings, Smiling George would cart a few players with him to Polly's, where they were guaranteed to be safe from muggings by sore losers. She found that, quote, there was nothing like craps to stoke the appetite for a playmate. Compared with the quiet concentration of cards, craps was a glorious circus, noisy, fast, and surging with adrenaline at each roll of the dice. 
Here, women were considered good luck and were often asked to kiss or blow on the dice. Players can multiply their winnings in minutes, as much as 900% in just two rolls, an aphrodisiac if there ever was one. She also went on to say, quote, Money meant nothing to those fellows. They sometimes spent 500 or more in an evening. Whoever won the crap game paid the bill. At their encouragement, she began selling alcohol too, encouraging men to come over earlier and stay later. Soon, her bar bills, quote, dwarfed her profits on the bedrooms. She was still careful with money, so for a while, she was a bartender and host, paying only the girls and a single maid to help keep the home clean. She quickly gained a reputation for having a comfortable speakeasy with a harem conveniently handy. As Applegate put it, quote, In a world of villains, she became known as someone a villain could trust, someone with real brains, sharp instincts, and moxie. Importantly, Polly still spoke perfect Yiddish, the lingua franca of the Jewish underworld, which was very useful for evading the predominantly Irish NYPD. Polly still had ideas of eventually going legit again, but she had kind of leaned into the idea of being a madam for a while longer and allowing herself even more luxuries. She'd always enjoyed them, of course, but now she was like really going for the finery. She was saving up for a mink coat, a very pricey object indeed. She talked about it all the time, to the point that, quote, when a guy was trying to make a point at craps, he'd holler, come on, little Joe, this is for Polly's mink coat. To tease her about this dream, Johns would ask her, quote, how's trapping tonight? When she finally got her first, she, quote, instructed the ferrier to let himself go, even if it meant decimating the mink populations of the world. I didn't care how big and bulky the coat was. I wanted to be swathed in mink, dripping it, trailing it. It wasn't all fun and games, though. We are talking about violent criminals, after all. Polly noted in her memoirs that the gangsters treated prostitutes worse than the legitimate businessmen she had coming in did. In the criminal underworld, women were second-class citizens, and prostitutes were on the lowest rungs of the ladder. Racketeers frowned on a man who got serious with a prostitute, and one girl working for Polly was punished. Polly uses the word mishandled in her memoir, which seems to imply raped by the gang when she began dating one of their members seriously and stopped working. Nevertheless, he married her and got her out of the brothel. When he died, she married someone working in a legitimate business and did well for herself. And we know this because Polly was good about keeping up with the girls that worked for her, and she tells their stories alongside her own in her memoirs. It seems that she would see them around long after they left her brothel, and usually they all kind of had a kind smile for each other. After this traumatizing incident, Polly moved offices to a 10-bedroom apartment on 80th Street, a section of the Upper West Side populated by prosperous garment manufacturers, real estate investors, and financers. The building was known as a safe one for vice entrepreneurs. The landlords didn't mind leasing to madams, gamblers, and anyone else willing to pay an exorbitant rent for a little extra privacy. She, Polly was making enough money to do so, after all, and to buy a nice car as well. She hadn't planned on the aggressive competition, though. There were several well-established houses in the area, and the madams didn't take kindly to a youngster encroaching on their territory. They made complaints about her to the police, and then when that didn't do anything, they began sending hearses to her apartment on busy nights. As the party was ramping up, quote, a couple of lugubrious characters would appear at the door with the announcement that they had come for the body. To avoid unwanted attention like this, Polly began changing apartments very frequently, later earning the reputation that she changed apartments every 24 hours. Of course, this was hardly conducive to building a regular clientele, so she set out to make friends with her competition. She charmed them, convincing them to at least leave her alone, and settled down on 75th Street for a while. 
This was her most luxurious house yet. She hired a decorator and quote, aside from the traditional brothel decor like gilded mirrors and oil nudes, Louis Cannes competing with Louis XVI, Adler had a few signature touches, including a Chinese room where guests could play mahjong, a bar built to resemble the recently excavated King Tut's tomb, and more. Polly started to be called the Jewish Jezebel, a nickname she didn't really talk about in her memoir, but she didn't seem to mind. The new digs were safer, but the payouts were lower. Bankers and real estate moguls might have the money to be a regular client, but they weren't down to party all night, so her bar tabs were falling. She shifted her business, keeping smaller apartments uptown where women could meet clients for private dates, but she moved her main operation back down to the heart of Broadway near Times Square. It was the area that author Raymond Chandler famously said was, quote, a nice neighborhood to have bad habits in. Soon her girls were known to be the best looking, best dressed, and best, well, best all around in New York. Her goal was to have the expression, going to Polly's, become a euphemism for the world's most popular indoor sport. To do this, she began putting in appearances at clubs, bringing the prettiest girls that worked for her with her. Quote, soon there was a whole file of Polly Adler jokes, which the MCs would haul out and dust off when we made our center door fancy entrances, she remembered. She might easily spend $500 in a night, but it was worth the investment. Being out at the clubs was kind of the equivalent of like a good shop window display for her business. This was kind of just like how the 1920s continued for her. She was known as the best madam in New York City, as well as one of the most expensive. It's rumored that many female Broadway stars worked for her before they made it big on the stage because they could make like a month's rent on a single date. Many of the city's most rich and powerful ended up on her doorstep more than once, including New York City Mayor Jimmy Walker. Most notably, it's said that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was one of her clients. Polly counted many very powerful men among her customers because she had a reputation, not just for the prettiest girls in the most luxurious house, but for keeping secrets. Whatever men preferred or confessed in pillow talk never left her house, and if she caught employees selling secrets, she fired them and made sure they couldn't kind of work in prostitution again. It is impossible to confirm that FDR was really a client, but quote, it was well known that Roosevelt loved an old-fashioned stag party, and for his birthday every year, he threw a men-only bash with all the trimmings, end quote. We also know for sure that he had at least one extramarital affair with Eleanor Roosevelt's social secretary, so it's possible he had more. Again, it's impossible to prove, but it's also not outside the realm of possibility. On a much darker note, it was also rumored that she was involved, perhaps a little distantly, in the assassination of her one-time loan shark, Arnold Rothstein. He, shot on, he was shot on November 4, 1928 at the Park Central Hotel on 7th Avenue. His role as big bankroll of the New York criminal element hadn't wavered much, but he had also started to like not pay his own gambling debts. When Mayor Jimmy Walker was told that AR had been shot, he supposedly said, quote, that means trouble from here on in. Another famed man about the time, Ernest Cuneo, said Rothstein alive had been an unsavory article. Rothstein dead was a calamity. The trail of blood left by the dying Rothstein led straight to the paths of corruption within the city machine, end quote. It took AR days to die, and he was conscious for a lot of it, but he never named his murderer. So theories were flying up and down Manhattan. Some thought he'd been killed because of his gambling debts. He owed as much as $340,000, which is $6 million today. Of course, this was dismissed, though, because, you know, well, dead men don't pay their debts. <laughs> Others thought it was competition over drug dealing territories. He had gotten involved in the drug trade at some point. 
And of course, AR blackmailed people too, so it could have just been someone who decided their life would be easier if he was dead. But pretty quickly, people started to settle on Polly's buddy, smiling George McManus. The man had been fun and charming in the early 20s, but had turned into a struggling alcoholic and a mean drunk by by the late 1920s. Evidence pointing to his guilt included the fact that he'd summoned AR to his room at the Park Central Hotel less than 30 minutes before Rothstein was shot. A revolver missing just one bullet was found on the sidewalk just outside and below McManus's room, and, of course, McManus himself had disappeared. And even more damning, the police didn't seem real intent on solving this murder. Remember, McManus was the youngest son of a cop, and several of his brothers were on the force. Debbie Applegate describes the NYPD's sham investigation as having a, quote, comical Keystone Cops quality. (laughs) Woof. And, of course, you know, McManus was still running his famous high-stakes craps game that's, like, where AR had apparently gotten, like, built up this $340,000 debt. Everyone was saying that it was McManus that AR owed the money to because someone had already paid out the winners. So, really, no one actually wanted to see uh, McManus behind bars, but also it was, like, hard to argue with the fact that he was the most likely suspect. And I'm telling this story because Polly was nervous. Nervous enough that other people noted it. She never said much on the subject either, which it's like this in the year 1919 that she didn't talk about. So the pieces are kind of in the press clippings. A hotel chambermaid at Park Central had noted that McManus had been drinking in his room with a pretty blonde in the hours before the murder. It was later found out that this was Ruth Keyes, a 23-year-old quote-unquote freelance model who worked for Polly. In her testimony, Ruth said that, quote, there were only two phone calls to the hotel room that afternoon and both were for me. Strange, since she wasn't staying there. Why was she receiving calls to McManus's room? A lot of people concluded that it was Polly calling because only Polly knew that Ruth was there. Polly has stated that she was nervous about potentially having to testify in McManus's trial, which like, Sure, would be bad for her because she had never yet had a charge of prostitution or being a madam actually stick. If she admitted in court that she had sent Ruth to George, well, it would be her turn to be on trial again soon. But this doesn't totally hold water. Ruth Keyes was interrogated again, and after that, the district attorney announced he'd be filing for the arrest of a Jane Doe. He never said who this Jane Doe was, but he wanted to charge her with first-degree murder along with her alleged accomplices John Doe and Richard Doe, who could only be McManus and one of his, like, associates. To be clear, Ruth is not the Jane Doe. I mean, she was released the same day, she was already in custody, why would they need to, like, file for her and call her Jane Doe? No, it was not Ruth. Polly might have been. And with that, a different picture forms. What if she was involved in AR's clumsy assassination, and I say clumsy because he survived for days? It would explain how nervous she was, but there's no clear motive for it. It's just kind of like a strange question mark in her life. We may never really know the full truth. Despite the scare around AR's death, business was still booming for Polly. If anything, the scandal probably tinted her house with a little edge, which was probably a little sexy. When the stock market crashed in 1929, Polly feared her business would dry up. But as I mentioned with the Moral Crusaders, people will always find a way to access their vices, and this was no exception. Men still showed up to her house looking to forget their troubles even just for a few hours. Things did get a little bad in 1930, though, when New York State Supreme Court Judge Samuel Seabury launched the largest investigation of municipal corruption in American history to date. 
Adler had made enough friends on the police force to earn an anonymous tip-off that she was under investigation in connection with Seabury's crusade. An anonymous caller t- an anonymous caller told her, quote, hurry Polly, get out of your house. They're on their way to serve you with a subpoena. The Seabury Commission wanted to know why she had never once been prosecuted in jail, despite an untold number of arrests by this point. Even Polly had lost count. During questioning, former Assistant District Attorney John C. Weston had admitted that he was, quote, afraid of Polly's influence and had laid down. Thinking she was finally going to be thrown in jail, she fled to Miami and hid for six months. Interestingly, the Seabury Commission actually helped Polly. Despite her fears, she wasn't sent to jail, and the commission had been so effective, it had actually kind of cleaned up the NYPD. In her memoir, she reflected that the immediate impact was that, quote, the police no longer were a headache. There were no more kowtowing to double-crossing by squad men, no more $100 handshakes, no more phony raids to up the month's quota. In fact, thanks to Judge Seabury and his not-very-merry men, I was able to operate for three years without breaking a lease. She was not so lucky, however, in 1936. The new mayor of New York, the reform-minded Fiorello LaGuardia, was determined to clean up the city. According to Smithsonian Magazine, quote, Within one minute of his swearing-in, LaGuardia ordered the arrest of Lucky Luciano and followed up with a threat to the entire police department to, quote, drive out the racketeers or get out yourselves. Polly was arrested in July 1936 and ended up pleading guilty to, quote, maintaining a disreputable apartment. She served 24 days of a 30-day sentence at the House of Detention for Women. While there, she was held in a cell near other prostitutes, and she wisely noted that, quote, the only reform offered these women is a term in jail with bad food and harsh treatment. The moment they have served their sentences, they are shoved back into the world with their bitterness against society more deeply rooted than before. Where could they go? What could they do? End quote. When Polly was released, she was tempted to try to create a rehabilitation project to help, quote, not only the old outcast prostitute or drunkard, but for the young girls who feel the lure of the bright lights, a farm staffed by sympathetic, socially conscious volunteers, not the sort of stuffed shirts who tell you on a full belly that you are not hungry. Why couldn't I go out and campaign for such a farm, I thought to myself. And then I smiled, a little sourly. Polly Adler in the role of social reformer was a lousy piece of casting, even in a daydream. End quote. In fact, she had once tried to offer to pay for clothing, a tutor, and a vacation for the boys living in a Jewish orphanage, but the administrators apparently, quote, concluded it was holier to snub one sinful woman than to give 12 little boys a summer of sun and happiness. End quote. They never acknowledged her letter. So even though she was probably better positioned than anyone to determine what help women needed to, like, avoid prostitution, she knew no one would ever take her seriously. In fact, she tried to go legit in general after her short prison term, but it wasn't really meant to be. Quote, A friend with a factory in New Jersey worried that associating with Madame Polly would hurt his credit. A nightclub owner said she'd be the perfect business partner if only the police would leave her alone. A restaurateur was similarly apologetic when she asked to work the hat check and cigarette concession. She realized, quote, Once you're tagged as a madame, it's for keeps. I could never be a legitimate operator. My reputation would always be an insurmountable stumbling block. I was a madame, or would be as soon as I'd plunk down a month's rent and open my little black book. I couldn't live my reputation down. All right, then. I'd live up to it. End quote. Soon enough, she had gained the reputation of, quote, the proprietress of New York's most opulent bordello. 
Though going legit hadn't worked out, society still came to her. But things didn't feel the same anymore. It wasn't exciting anymore. She didn't feel like she was on top or cheating the game of life. Quote, it is one thing to embark on an enterprise under your own power, but when you are pushed into it, when it seems, as it did to me, that you have no other choice, then you start out bogged down by the by the chips on your shoulders, in the mood to make the worst of things instead of the best. She retreated into a shell of indifference, and the next couple of years were her unhappiest as a madam. Sick of New York, Polly tried her hand at um, shifting to Chicago. She had several clients in New York who actually lived in the Windy City, but when she called them up to say she was working in their hometown, they made themselves scarce. It was a flop, and she returned to New York very quickly. But it was in Chicago that another madam cheered Polly up and got her head back in the game. In a rare breakdown, Polly told her, quote, I wasn't born in a whorehouse and I'm not going to die in one, end quote. Vicky, the madam, told her, quote, Seems to me it's a waste of breath belly aching about the cards being stacked. And the way I look at it, somebody's got to be a madam. Maybe madams ain't considered respectable, but by God, Polly, the world ain't ever been able to get along without them. Leastwise not since civilization set in. I guess back when we was all living in caves and a guy got to feeling randy, he just picked up a rock and went hunting. The anthropological lecture got Polly laughing and finally snapped her out of her two-year depression. In the late 30s, boxers and musicians became her main clients, including Frank Sinatra. The two struck up a genuine friendship, and he inscribed her guestbook with, quote, Polly, I adore you, Francis. But also in the late 30s, the IRS suddenly decided that Polly had vastly underpaid her taxes from 1927 to 1930, and they put a lien on her for $12,425, over $250,000 today. She didn't have the cash, so she went into hiding, but federal agents got word to her that if she didn't come in, they would start raiding her businesses. This seems oddly polite to me. Like, why would you warn her? But anyway, (laughs) here we are. Also in the late 1930s, Hitler's rise in Germany saw an increase in Jewish immigrants to the U.S., including Polly's family. She had managed to keep her life as a madam secret from them all this time, but that seemed poised to unravel now that everyone was finally living in New York. Moreover, Polly noticed that new challenges were arising for madams all over the city. She wrote, quote, Toward the end of the 30s, an increasing number of my clientele seemed sexually maladjusted. As the tension in Europe grew and war became ever more imminent, people's peculiarities intensified. They seemed to get more and more off the beam. Whorehouses always draw twisted people who are unable to satisfy their desires normally. But now it got so that I began to think of a patron who wanted the simple, old-fashioned methods as a truck driver. End quote. She did her best to fulfill every request, and if it was a particularly rare desire that most prostitutes wouldn't agree to, whoever did agree, Polly paid twice the usual rate. She was also known for providing safe hideaways for men interested in other men, though she didn't keep any men as employees herself. This brings up an important point. Past her teens, we don't have any stories of Polly dating. There's like one mention of falling in love with someone after she was attacked by her foreman, but besides that, we really, we don't have anything. There is some speculation that she was a lesbian, 
According to Applegate, quote, she certainly had many friends in the lesbian and gay community and made no effort to conceal it. She was regularly spotted in the pansy clubs and was reported attending the famous Hamilton Lodge Ball, an annual drag ball that had become a major event with thousands of spectators. She reportedly showed up dressed in a male tux, a la Marlene Dietrich, along with about six of her girls who were similarly dressed. Polly and her girls participated in the climactic Dance of the Fairies before an audience of thousands, end quote. But again, we also don't know anything for sure about this either. Um, Polly doesn't talk about it much in her memoir. When the World's Fair came to New York in 1939, Polly was written about in Fortune magazine, an honor usually reserved for quote-unquote legitimate executives. She was mentioned in a visitor's guide of everything to do in New York City, from the highbrow to the low, with Polly sort of straddling both categories. It described her current apartment perfectly and even named her dress in it, so like obviously the author had been there, which amused her, but also meant she had to pack up and move again. Reportedly, Mayor LaGuardia was furious about this because it was, quote, humiliating that Fortune knew where Polly Adler was, but he and his police did not. Soon after, quote, a spate of Pollyanna Polly Adler mix-up jokes landed her a mention in the New Yorker's Talk of the Town section. Playwright George S. Kaufman dropped her name in his hit play, The Man Who Came to Dinner, and she appeared under the pseudonym Molly Levine in Rion Berkovich's oh gosh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Rion Berkovici's book for immediate release. When Orson Welles decided he wanted to include a brothel scene in Citizen Kane, it was to Polly Adler's house that he went to get a feel for how it should look. The scene ended up being cut by Hollywood censors, but his signature in her autograph book survives. She became a fixture in the best clubs in New York City and befriended a young Desi Arnaz in the years before he met and became famous with Lucille Ball. She and her girls were always welcome at Copacabana, Frank Costello's new supper club. It was there that she met uh, Joe DiMaggio, the New York Yankees star slugger, when he first got to New York. All of them came to her house and she catered to their requests. DiMaggio apparently complained that his knees were slipping on her satin sheets, so she kept a set of cotton ones on hand for him. I mean, she was at the absolute top of her game. This is incredible. I love it. Then Pearl Harbor was bombed, and the U.S. entered World War II. Lots of regulations like citywide blackouts and food rationing should have hobbled her business. But again, quote, the more desperate the times, the more men seek the great escape of sex. As in World War I, the streets of New York were filled with V-girls, but this time, according to Polly, it was ambiguous if the V stood for victory or venereal. Mean, but true. She noted a, quote, desperate, devil-may-care attitude that she'd never seen before in her clients. Now, in her early 40s, Polly began to see the industry differently. A lot of her Johns were young enough to be her sons. In fact, some called her mom. In 1942, with apparently nothing better to do, the FBI began investigating her again. They saw their investigation as, quote, the most important white slave case in the New York City Field Division. J. Edgar Hoover pushed the agents personally. He and LaGuardia were both annoyed that Polly had escaped punishment for so long, not considering her three weeks of imprisonment back in 1936. In January 1943, Polly came down with pleurisy. She had to close the house down because she was far too sick to run it. She was being taken care of by a friend who was a nurse, but the police found her, trying to arrest her. She ended up being taken to a Bellevue hospital ward instead, though technically she was like still imprisoned, kind of. By the time she was healthy enough to be discharged, she was also eligible for bail, so she managed to go directly home. Somehow, the case ended up being dismissed in the meantime, but I don't know. This final arrest kind of 
was the nail in the coffin for Polly. She briefly reopened her business, but she knew in her heart that she was done. Quote, I felt like the ghost in Hamlet, she explained. The long illness had left her drained and, quote, everything was an effort. Later that year, she retired for good. She moved to Burbank, California, where she finally achieved her goal of getting her high school diploma. She began coursework for a college degree, but didn't finish it. She did, Polly, Polly did, however, take to calling herself Madame Emeritus during this time. She also wrote her memoir, A House Is Not A Home, with the help of ghostwriter Virginia Faulkner. The manuscript was, quote, rejected by nearly all New York's male publishers who were fearful it would tarnish their reputations. But literary agent Anne Watkins and publisher Mary Roberts Reinhardt saw it for the gold mine it was, end quote. When it was released in 1953, it was an instant bestseller and sold two million copies. The book spawned a film adaptation in 1964 with Shelley Winters playing Polly. Unfortunately, Polly didn't live to see it. She died of lung cancer on June 9, 1962. She's buried in Mount Sinai Memorial Park in Los Angeles. I... I'm so happy to have finally done this. I've been wanting to cover Polly Adler for over a year now. I mean, I even, like, when I was in New York, I was, like, doing research on the Committee of 14 and just, like, looking at their notes about her and being like, this is incredible. She is so fascinating to me because she was so aware of her role in New York society. And I tried to note in this episode, like, the moments where she was way ahead of her time in terms of, like, rehabilitation and sexuality and, like, actual equality. As her biography... As her biographer Debbie Applegate noted in the New York Times review, quote, It was not Polly, but her male criminal colleagues who became 20th century icons. Sex workers in general are dealers in illusion, she writes, and Americans do not like to see the curtain pulled back to reveal the mechanisms, let alone the banality of their dreams. Polly, as a facilitator of that, kind of inhabits a weird space for people in their minds. She made their most secret desires possible, but they also had to pay for it, which can make anything feel a little tawdry like maybe it wasn't worth it and I think that's why I mean in addition to just like being illegal and the way people judge and frown upon prostitution I think that's why for a long time Polly Adler was forgotten but her story is a is a really important part of American history and um it says a lot I think about how our attitudes toward sexuality have both changed and remained the same over the last 150 years. And I'm going to get off my soapbox now. <laughs> um, that is the story of Polly Adler. I'm sorry episodes have been a little irregular lately, but I think I'm getting back on track. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by sending me a note. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Unruly Figures. You can also follow Unruly Figures on Substack, where I post tons of bonus content. If you have a moment, please give the show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other folks find this work. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. 
That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Thank you.